Good afternoon. Um, in this second part of, of our day, in this afternoon, we will count uh, with the presence of Father Simon Francis Gain. Um, Father Simon uh, is the director of the Angelicum Thomistic Institute, where he teaches theological anthropology and ethics. He entered the Dominican order in 1995 after completing after completing doctoral studies at the University of Oxford on the topic of uncreated and created grace. And he was a lecturer and fellow at Blackfriars in Oxford during many years, where he taught fundamental and dogmatic theology. He is a member of the advisory board of the Aquinas Institute, and last year he was appointed by Pope Francis as a member of the International Theological Commission whose mission is to assist the OEC and primarily the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in examining doctrinal questions of major importance. Among Father, Father Simon's works are we will, will There Be Free Will in Heaven, Freedom, Impeccability and Beatitude in 2003, and Did the Savior See the Father, Christ, Salvation and the Vision of God in 2015. Thank you very much, Father Simon, and now is yours. Okay. So this afternoon I'm going to speak about nature and grace. We've heard about nature this morning, so now I'll have to explain something about grace so that we can then explore the relationship between them, between nature and grace. But I've also said I'll speak about nature and grace before and after the fall. So obviously, I'll say something. Well, I think I'm going to have to say that the relationship between nature and grace is going to be somehow different before and after the fall. The fall refers to the first human sin and its consequences. And I'm going to suggest that the fall, or what's it a fall from? I'm going to suggest it's a fall from grace. But as the very suggestion that there was a fall is quite a controversial one, at least today, I'm going to say something first about Catholic teaching on the fall before going on to ask then about the relationship between nature and grace before and after that devastating event took place. When the church teaches about the fall, it's interpreting what we find in scripture, especially in the early chapters of Genesis. There we find Adam and Eve portrayed as the first human beings living in the Garden of Eden, which God has planted. God thus provides food for them, including the tree of life. And there's an ease of communication in which God speaks with them, making known to them that they may eat of any of the trees in the garden, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which would bring them death, God tells them. With access to the tree of life, however, 
there's a kind of intimation of immortality for Adam and Eve. Their life's untroubled as regards not only God, but also as regards each other. Both are naked and unashamed in a kind of innocence, without any kind of conflict within each of them, such as human beings will later experience that inner conflict. It's only after their disobedience to God that we find a situation where Eve suffers a negative domination by her husband, as well as pain from childbirth. Likewise, before their disobedience, they have a positive relationship with the environment in which God had set them, Adam naming the animals and so on. Adam had been placed in the garden to till and keep it, with Eve as his helper, while afterwards work in the garden becomes a burdensome labour and there is enmity between human beings and at least one other animal, the serpent. God now bars their access to the tree of life, ruling out the possibility of immortality. Well, those are the details of the story, but we need to ask how the church goes about interpreting the story today, especially in the light of the fact of what we know scientifically about human origins. Keeping things brief, as we know, fundamentalist Protestant Christians read the creation narratives in Genesis as literal historical accounts of what took place at the origins of the human race. And this is very easily opposed, but misleadingly opposed, to a symbolic interpretation as though those were the only two options. A purely symbolic interpretation is often taken to say that these accounts present truths that relate simply to all human beings, to every man, if you like. To some extent, this is true because Adam means human being, and Adam does somehow symbolize our common humanity. However, the symbolic view I'm talking about says that Adam symbolizes all of humanity without saying anything about some initial historical state of any first human beings. For convenience, I shall refer to this account as the liberal view. While the fundamentalist view says that Genesis 2 to 3 is a literal account of the origins of the human race, including a pre-fall condition or state. The liberal view says that it is a symbolic account of the situation of the entire human race through time, including our imagination of a golden age, a, basic, a base, basically mythical state or condition imagined by us 
at the beginning of the human race. Now, if you were successful in giving the impression that the fundamentalist and liberal views are the only possible ones, all you need to do is to discredit the fundamentalist view scientifically, and the liberal view automatically becomes the victor. Since the story of Adam and Eve, the argument would go, cannot be literal history, since it's ruled out in various ways by the scientific knowledge we have, it must therefore be symbolic and be about humankind in general. Genesis then would have nothing to tell us specifically about the actual situation of the first human beings, about any actual initial state or condition they might have had. Anything about a golden age in paradise would simply be a mythical way of talking about what God wants for us all, not about any condition our first ancestors actually enjoyed before everything went wrong. Such a view seems to me to end up making human fallenness something that was part of our original creation. However, it seems to me that the possibility of falling into sin that comes with our human nature is different from saying that sin is necessary to creation. And that would lead us down the path towards denying creation's goodness, which is something Catholics in faithfulness to scripture and tradition cannot do. However, these two readings are not in fact the only possible views. And the ordinary teaching of the Catholic Church in the Catechism commits us to a third view, which is neither fundamentalist nor liberal. Not that everything in the fundamentalist and liberal views are wrong. I suggest that the liberal view is correct in thinking the stories to be symbolic in their genre rather than literal. However, the liberal view is wrong in supposing that the story is about the whole human race to the exclusion of telling us something important about the historic state or condition of the first human beings. In fact, I think the story is telling us something important about the human race in general, precisely because it is telling us something important about the human race's first members. So what we have in Genesis are not literal accounts of our first ancestors, nor symbolic accounts of just humanity in general, but rather symbolic accounts relating to our historic first ancestors. And this view I call the Catholic view. As the Catechism puts it, the Church, interpreting the symbolism of biblical language in an authentic way, 
in the light of the New Testament and tradition, teaches that our first parents, Adam and Eve, were constituted in an original state of holiness and justice. I want to suggest that if we are to understand what this state of original holiness or justice means, we need to understand it in terms of divine supernatural grace perfecting our human nature. In the figurative story of the early chapters of Genesis before the fall, we find not only human nature at its point of origin, but also human nature blessed by grace. We've heard about nature this morning, so I need to speak about grace and what it is. In general, grace means a gift. The grace of Jesus Christ is something we read about in scripture and in tradition, something God has revealed to us, something that starts to put right the fall of Adam and Eve. The word grace has a whole range of meaning in scripture, covering God's graciousness towards us and his special love for us, the gift of Jesus himself to us, the Holy Spirit who is given to us, the grace in which we now stand, as St. Paul says and the gifts God graciously bestows on us, some of which can be quite extraordinary, like miracle working or healing or whatever it might be. In the Greek of the New Testament, in Latin and many other languages, the word grace is also linked to the word for thanks or thanksgiving or gratitude. The word grace itself wasn't a Christian invention, but it underwent a sort of divine takeover from uses in everyday life. Something like being in another's good graces. Gifts freely given by one person to another. And the gratitude that arises in us when we receive something from other people. These ordinary uses of the word are found in the Bible too, as well as the extraordinary ways they're applied to the relationship of human beings with God. St. Thomas came to see this whole range of meaning as encapsulated in three basic interrelated meanings. One, the graciousness of one person towards another, a gracious attitude of, say, a king towards his subjects. Two, the actual gifts such a person may bestow on them out of his graciousness. And three, their gratefulness towards the giver. When this language is applied to the human relationship with God, we think of one, God's own graciousness towards us, redeeming us and sanctifying us. Two, 
the special gifts of grace he thus bestows on his human creatures. And three, our gratefulness to him for the graces we have received. The last of these, gratitude, has been the least controversial among theologians. There's no real debate over whether we ought to give thanks to God. And so theology hasn't spent so much time over number three. But number one has been a bit more controversial. Is God's graciousness just his graciousness in creating us out of nothing with our distinctive human nature? Or does his grace or graciousness to us mean something over and above the creation of our human nature and what naturally goes with it? And number two has been even more debated. Do we receive gifts from God over and above the human nature he has given us as his creatures? Do those gifts make some difference to our nature? Do they really change us? Thinking about all that God has done for us, not only creating us, but also redeeming us through Jesus Christ, whom he has sent to us, sanctifying us by the Holy Spirit, whom Christ has sent upon us, thinking about all this led the fathers of the church to say that some gifts were above nature. Take this in Latin, run it together into one word, and you get supernaturalis, the word supernatural. By the 13th century, when St. Thomas lived, the word supernatural had really come into its own and was much used by theologians side by side with the word nature. Theologians had always spoken of nature and of human nature, but as they got to know the philosophy of Aristotle better around this time, they presupposed a much more solid idea of what human nature involved, including the particular capacities, goals, and inclinations that went with it, the kind of thing that Father Thomas Joseph was talking about this morning. But it wasn't just the concept of nature that they were developing. They were also exploring the concept of the supernatural in tandem with the concept of the natural. The two went together. Their view of what God has done for us encompass not only what is natural for us, but also what is supernatural. And they spoke not just of God's grace, but of God's supernatural grace, his supernatural gift to nature. If you'd asked a 12th century theologian why God's grace was a gift he'd probably have answered, well, that's just what the word grace means, a gift. Grace is a gift because that's what the word grace means. A theologian of the 13th century, however, could give a deeper answer. A theologian like St. Thomas could say 
that grace is a gift because it is supernatural. Grace is not something that our human nature or any created nature has the power to generate. We don't make God's grace for ourselves. This means, however, that grace has to come from somewhere else other than nature. And in fact, this gift comes from above, from above our nature, from God. And something from above our nature we call supernatural. And if grace is supernatural, it can only come from above our nature. And that explains why it comes to us as a gift. We cannot acquire it for ourselves by the power of our nature. If it comes to us, it comes to us only supernaturally as God's gift. But why would we need or want this gift anyway? Why shouldn't our wonderful human nature with all its innate capacities be good enough for us? Let's put that in a wider context, the wider context of God's calling. As a matter of fact, something revealed in scripture, God issues a calling to human beings calling them to something that outstrips the power of their nature. This is what we call the beatific vision, as we heard it mentioned this morning. Well, St. John, St. Paul, and our Lord himself all speak of this vision of God that awaits us in heaven in the next life. Now, it's true that we can't see God with our eyes, because God is spirit. As divine, he doesn't have a visible body. But our Catholic tradition doesn't understand the vision of God to be something that takes place through physical eyes anyway. It's more of a spiritual seeing or a vision of the intellect. When we understand something, at least in English, we often say, oh, I see. We don't mean seeing with the eye, but seeing with the mind. And it was the same in St. Thomas's Latin. But when we think of not just our physical eyes, but human nature more widely, it still doesn't seem to have the wherewithal to give us an intellectual grasp of God himself, of God the Holy Trinity. One reason for that is that God is unlimited. His being is not defined within definite finite bounds. God is infinite. And yet our power to know and our power to love is finite. As creatures, we are finite. We have limitations. And when we examine the power to know and love, that comes with our human nature, we find that it comes with limitations. Our knowledge has its origin in our bodily senses, and it works with finite concepts and ideas. And none of that is going to be able to deliver knowledge 
of what this invisible and infinite God really is. The vision of God which the Bible promises us can only be something supernatural for us. Now, one conclusion we don't want to jump to is to suppose that the first human beings were constituted in the vision of God. Sometimes people assume that the paradise of Eden is the same as heaven, and that Adam and Eve enjoyed the vision of God just as he really is. St. Thomas, however, thinks that that can't be true. One reason he thinks that is because he does not think that people who are in heaven can leave it. For St. Thomas, the very essence of heaven is seeing God as he really is, seeing the essence of God as he puts it. It's a happiness so perfect that it cannot be lost. If it could be lost, it wouldn't be a perfect happiness. If you knew you could lose your happiness, you wouldn't be perfectly happy. But those who see that God really is the supreme goodness can't will to stop seeing him. Heaven is so great that you can't leave it. This implies that the first human beings were not in heaven, but in another lesser kind of paradise. St. Thomas thinks that they were made to be on a pilgrimage, on a journey towards their heavenly destination. St. Thomas thinks of the next life as an arrival and this life as a journey there. And Adam and Eve were created at a starting point rather than an end point. This fits with one of the basic facts we know about human nature, namely that it is unfinished. Human nature comes unperfected and in need of perfection. Our nature may give us capacities and incline us to goals, but it doesn't come fitted out perfectly or even with all the perfections we need to get to our goals. Knowledge and virtue have to be acquired. Nature doesn't give them automatically. By nature, then, we are the kind of creatures that have histories, that need to progress, that need to make of our lives a journey. And when God blessed humanity with the supernatural at the very beginning, he did something very fitting for human nature. He made the blessing of the supernatural come in two stages as well, the journey and the destination. St. Thomas thinks that a supernatural destination requires a supernatural journey. There is something about the journey 
that means if it is really a journey to that place, it has to somehow touch that place. If our journey didn't actually get us to the place we want to go to, it wouldn't really be a journey there. St. Thomas thinks that there has to be something in the journey that disposes us for the destination of heaven, a supernatural disposition gifted to human nature that really directs or orders human nature to its supernatural final goal. And this disposition he identifies as supernatural grace that makes us pleasing to God, makes us friends of God, that quality in the soul that Catholics often call sanctifying grace. With its supernatural character, it makes us pilgrims on the journey to heaven. Thomas compares grace and heavenly glory as the seed to the full plant or tree. It is a grace that figures in our life with God both before and after the fall. And I'll say more de- give more detail about that, about this gift, after the break. Let me now return to the question, why would we want or need this grace if human nature is already something so wonderful? Well, while nature is something wonderful, the supernatural is something more wonderful still, something that unites us with God, something it does as we've seen in two stages. But if human nature is to be ultimately perfected by the glory of the beatific vision, it needs grace to get there. And if we ask why human nature has need of grace to make this journey, it's because human nature is limited, meaning it cannot acquire for itself what lies beyond its nature. And grace is something supernatural and has to be if it's to lead us to our supernatural goal. So the answer as to why human beings need grace is fundamentally their limitedness, their finitude as creatures. Perhaps a more obvious answer we could come up with as to the, to the question why we need grace is the answer that we're sinners. Because we're sinners, we need grace to be forgiven and be restored to a proper relationship with God. But St. Thomas thinks that even before we bring sin into the picture, human nature already stood in need of divine grace, just because it's limited and finite. Even a perfect, sinless human being would have need of grace, just because even a perfect, sinless human being is still finite. So St. Thomas thinks that there are two reasons why human nature needs grace. 
finitude and sin. And before the fall, before there was sin, there was still a role for grace to elevate human nature, to raise human beings up above their nature to know and love God in friendship. This, then, is how we can interpret the picture we find in Genesis of Adam and Eve before the fall. Here we find God already meeting human nature's need for grace by blessing humanity with his presence in the garden and relating Adam and Eve to him by grace. They already have a relationship with God in which they can then journey to the destination of heavenly glory. St. Thomas doesn't just speak of it, though, in terms of their holiness or sanctity, their initial obedience to God. Remember how the Catechism spoke in the traditional way of the state before the fall as one of holiness and justice. This original justice or righteousness is something St. Thomas thinks of as a kind of rightness that extends throughout the initial life of the first human beings, not just their right ordering to God, but also internally within each one, and so towards each other and to their wider environment. St. Thomas reads in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, that God created man right, and he takes that very seriously. He held that in itself, human nature is complex, and when working properly, very finely balanced. And so it can very easily go out of balance with internal tensions between intellect and will, mind and passions, body and soul. St. Thomas held that by way of further supernatural gifts, there was originally an inner harmony or integrity within each human person, together with a protection of the mind against ignorance and a protection of the body against whatever might harm it and the gift to be able not to die, as well as being able to die. This is how St. Thomas makes sense of the picture we have of the first human beings in Scripture. The extraordinary elements of this picture, the fact that they were not yet subject to death with access to the tree of life, together with the fact that other as negative aspects of life, suffering, domination, and so on, were not yet experienced by them. This is understood as a supernatural perfection of their nature. If we don't make this distinction between supernatural and natural, we can easily go wrong in our understanding of the first human beings and of human nature in general. If the fact that the first human beings were not subject to death 
were to be understood as part of their nature, then we might suppose that human nature was by definition immortal. But then we would have to take account of the fact that we are mortal and wonder whether we were no longer real human beings. Has nature been so changed by sin that we're almost a different species from what Adam and Eve were at the beginning? If the relationship with God from which Adam and Eve fell was not a supernatural gift, then was it part of their human nature that they enjoyed such an extraordinary friendship with God? Here we would start to run into all sorts of problems. And when these issues came up as they did at the Reformation and afterwards, the church was inclined to say that these aspects of the life of the first human beings were supernatural gift rather than something that just followed from what was natural to humanity. The Dominican Pope, St. Pius V, condemned the idea that the immortality and participation in the divine nature enjoyed before the fall was owed to human nature. They weren't owed. They were gifts of supernatural grace. If we don't take account of the supernatural gifts that elevate human nature in understanding humanity before the fall, we can easily go wrong in our whole account of what it is to be human and to have a share in God's own life. And so theologians speak of the first human beings as originally just or right in a number of ways. They have to do this in a number of ways because of the complexity of human nature. As you can see, human nature is not something simple or straightforward. We are complex creatures and our nature is a reality that is complex. If we want to understand how a complex nature comes to perfection, our account of its perfection is going to be complicated too. Complex, just because the nature getting perfected is complex. And this is why St. Thomas speaks of a number of different supernatural gifts as involved in the supernatural life of the first human beings. There are gifts of impassibility and immortality, which protected Adam and Eve from suffering and death. There was also the gift of integrity, which put the whole complexity of human faculties and passions in a balanced harmony. And there was also a gift of knowledge, which freed the intellect from the danger of ignorance. Underlying all these was the gift of grace, which ordered the complex nature of the first human beings rightly to God. And it's from that right ordering that the rest of their complex right ordering followed. 
There's more that can be said about Greece and Nietzsche before the fall, including much more about sanctifying Greece and other gifts that are rooted in it. But I'll say more about those gifts after the break. Because Greece is something that we find in our lives which come after the fall, as well as in those lives of humanity from before the fall. However, we shall also find out some differences of before and after the fall, and I'm going to say more about those differences after the break as 